Dedicate this class in honor of my mother-in-law. Today is her yard site. I'm Sarah Basyakov. So, the, so all of the learning that we're going to do now should be a great benefit to her. All right. Okay, so last time we, we started to discuss this idea that the Tzadik Gomer, the complete Tzadik, also goes by another name, the Bnei Aliyah, the superior men or men of elevation. There were two reasons. One is that they elevate the darkness into light, the bitterness into sweetness, meaning they're, tra- in other words, that's just a reference to the fact they've transformed the ungodliness of their animal soul into something holy, into something godly, right? Something that is not achieved by the incomplete tzaddik because in order to achieve transformation, you first have to remove any vestige of attachment to anything ungodly. And then the animal soul can be transformed. And what is it that removes the vestige of attachment? Is the hatred. The hatred depends on the love. So if the love is incomplete, the hatred is incomplete, and transformation is impossible. So the complete tzaddik is also called... Ben Aliyah, because they've elevated the unholiness, the sitracha, the klipa, into holiness within themselves. Okay? Then we started the second idea, and I read the whole thing very quickly, which is that the complete tzaddik, they're serving Hashem for Hashem's sake, not for their own sake. What does that mean? There is, in general, love, for the most part, is, first off, just as, 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 a, as a general point. Hasidus understands um, that the essence of an emotional quality in, the, in a person is not the experience, but how it changes the person. So for instance, if, um, if somebody feels an, an amazing sense of a spiritual elevation, but in the end, they're not changed in a way that they, they're, they're, the way they approach their life is altered because of that experience, then as far as Hasidus is concerned, that doesn't actually mean that they experienced a true emotion. Okay? And in the reverse, if um, somebody is inclined towards or against something and that actually affects how they live their life, even if it's not a very powerful or visceral experience, that would be considered from Hasidus' point of view a real emotion. So... In general, how would you measure whether or not you have fear of something? By not how anxious you feel, but how you act. act. Now, to be fair, does that mean that the emotional experience is not part of the emotion? It doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It means first you see, does this actually affect a change in the person? And then secondarily, can you then see how much is that... um, and what way does that actually change the experience of the person? So if I feel very afraid of something, but I actually not in any way inhibited, then I'm not really feeling fear. I don't, there's something interesting going on, but that wouldn't be from a point of view fear. But if I actually am inhibited, I actually feel, I actually have a hard time going forward, or, I'm, or, or I, I, I develop a, 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 a cautious attitude towards something, then that means that the fear is real. And then we can ask how intense is the fear? Is it, is it, is it overwhelming and paralyzing or is it just like mild? Okay. And so with love, love, has, love causes a person to seek something out. Love, love drives a person towards something. And so if 
I experience a lot of a, a warmth and a, and, and, a, and, a, and a rich kind of positive feeling towards something, but I'm not actually trying to achieve anything. It doesn't drive me to seek anything out. Then I say that it's not really called love. Okay. Um, this is this is because of a general understanding about the role of emotions, according to Chassidus, which is the role of emotions are to bind us to those that are around us, to other people, to Hashem, and so an emotion which is only experienced within yourself and doesn't actually change how you relate to someone um, is not really functioning as an emotion. Be analogous to the role of an eye is to see what's around you, right? Well, if you're experiencing um, something that's not there, you're like you're experiencing a gorilla in front of you then we would say you're not really seeing, right? You might, you, you, you're having a hallucination. It feels like seeing to you, but it's not actually seeing because the role of seeing is that the world around you should be perceived by you. And that's not what's happening when a person's experiencing hallucination. So in a similar way, a person can experience kind of an emotional hallucination where they have a kind of the experience of love or fear or any other kind of emotion, but not the actual change in attachment that that's supposed to achieve. That's the role of emotions. Why Shem gave us those emotions. Okay, given that, just as an introductory remark. Love, in general, what does love seek out? Love seeks out closeness. Um, he compares it to thirst. When thirsty, what does it mean that you're thirsty? You want what? Your right, specifically, right. Usually, you know, if it's physical thirst, they're looking at water, right? So someone who claims to be thirsty and is not actually pursuing water, um, arguably is not really thirsty, are they? <laughs> Okay, granted, right. Especially because in real life there could be overriding things, right? You might be thirsty, but it's a fast day, so you don't actually go get water. Okay, granted. Okay. But if we take it in isolation, if you're thirsty and there's water readily available, what will you do? You go get it. You go get it, right? Um, so love generally seeks out, kind of, it's like thirst, there's a seeking out a closeness with the beloved. Now, what about the complete tzaddik? The complete tzaddik, as we read last time, is the opposite. The person is not trying to become closer to Hashem, but is trying to, um, as he says, redeem his father and mother. Like the person who, who, whose love is not, how can I be closer to the one I love, but how can I enhance the life of the one I love? Now, I mentioned this in a previous class, and I mentioned this also in the last class, but I want to spend a little bit of time on it, but not too much time. If I love somebody, and it's healthy, normal love, do I want that person's life to be good? Yes, yes right. I mean, it, 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 no, no reasonable sense of love means I, want, I have no interest in whether or not the other person has a high quality of life. The question is one of... What is, the, what is the essential desire, the essential objective of my love, and what is a secondary thing? In most love, what the essential desire is to be close to someone. Now, what is it like to be close to someone who's miserable, who's suffering? Not fun. Not fun. And in fact, it, it, it actually feels like you're not so close, because when someone is suffering or miserable, they're their self more withdrawn. They're less available for closeness, right? So therefore, part of wanting to be close to someone is to want them to be well off. Does that make sense? But if that's the, and that's how normal love works, but if that's the case, then my desire for someone to be well off is generally limited by my desire to be close to them, which is why if you really love somebody and they would be better off without you in their life, love doesn't naturally lead you to just walk away from them. 
make sense? Okay. Now, in the way he describes it here is that the love of the son is willing to die to redeem his parents. Now, that kind of a love, can we say that the desire for his parents' well-being is rooted in his desire to get closer to his parents? No. Why not? Because if, if he dies to redeem his parents, is he close to his parents anymore? No. No. Why not? He's dead. Right? So what is so so we have to, so what is this love? This love is not that I desire closeness, and in order to have a, a more complete closeness, the one I love has to have be in a state of, of well being, of thriving and flourishing. But rather, my love is that I seek out their welfare, their benefit, with no. No, it, and it doesn't, it, doesn't re, it doesn't revert back to myself that this is there in, in order for me to achieve some kind of a, a closeness, some kind of a fulfillment, some kind of an attachment. Okay, now, in the text, this is the last thing we discussed last week. In the text, it uses the example of a child to parents, right? Intuitively, I think for most people, it made more sense if we flipped the analogy around and we spoke about parents to children, Right? It is, it is readily observed that parents in extreme circumstances will give up their lives for the safety and well-being of their children, correct? Okay. And in fact, even in Jewish law, that is understood that would be the case. Okay? Um, I don't want to go into the specifics, but there is a law that if, if somebody is presumed to be willing to murder you, and the example is that someone is sneaking into your house, emphasis on sneaking. Why emphasis on sneaking? Why is someone sneaking into your house? To do something that you don't. Because they're afraid to be caught. caught which means that there's a, they're, they're, we, this person is clearly afraid that they're to leave witnesses. Someone who's barging your house in broad daylight in front of everybody, as much as they're a criminal, right? They're clearly willing to have people know what they're doing. And so there's not in and of itself a presumption that they would kill. But if somebody's sneaking in, there's a presumption that this person's afraid enough of being caught that if they discover a witness to their actions, they might end up murdering the person. Now, that we could discuss, but let's just take that as a granted. So what's the lacha if you discover someone sneaking into your house? Right. What's the exception? There's one exception to this rule. If it's your father. If it's your father. Why? Because you're assuming he's not going to kill you. You're assuming he's not going to kill you because parents would never, wouldn't kill their children even though they might break in and steal their stuff, but they wouldn't go that far. Now, is the reverse true? Do we make the same assumption if a son breaks into his father's house to steal? No. No. Okay. So, and that kind of flies in the face of the way this is described here in the, the Zohar that the Alter Rebbe quotes, where he says that, the, that the, the child will give up his life for his parents. Okay. And so what I started to discuss um, last, was it Tuesday? Yeah, it was Tuesday. Is that the purpose of the analogy is to explain the idea behind this love, not to explain what it's like. In other words, if I want to know what does it feel like to love someone in the sense that all you want is their well-being to the point that you're willing to give them up in order for them to give them up completely, give yourself up completely in order for them to, to have a life, right? you see that phenomenon play out from parents towards children 
in this world, not the reverse. But that's not a good analogy for the godly, for, for the tzaddik and Hashem. Why? Because in the human being, what was the underlying rationale? Why would a parent be willing to give up their life for their child? And the reverse is less probable. Because of the feeling? Yeah, but why? What is it? Why is it that parents have this kind of self-sacrificial love to their children that is not reciprocated? Why? Good. Add one important detail. They're an extension which has what important quality? Caring. They're younger. They're younger. And so who's more likely to survive longer? The kids, right? So if you want to perpetuate yourself, where's your better investment? In yourself or in your children? If you see your child as an extension of you, the child lives... Right, and then the child has a child, child has a child, right? Okay. Does that make sense that the, that the tzaddik is willing to give up himself because he sees Hashem as the way to perpetuate his own identity and legacy into the future? No, right? No, so you have to explain it the reverse. Now, we do have a notion of children having a tremendous kind of loyalty and devotion to their parents, although it's limited because they're separate from their parents. Okay? But what's the root of that? The root of that is that there is some awareness deep in the human psyche that the parent is the basis of the existence of the child. Not just in a, just a physical sense the parent gave rise to the child, but th- in some sense there's a heritage, there's a lineage, there's an identity which originates with the parent and continues into the child. Um, and, and the way this is sometimes put is that the parent is like the tree and the child is like the branch. Now, if you were to only have that aspect of the parent-child relationship, and it was a choice between the well-being of the parent and the life of the child, what would the child pick? The parent. Now, because that's not how human beings are, right? Human beings become separate beings from their parents, right? So that becomes one facet of a larger psyche that's rooted in a sense of your own ego, your own self. But now let's talk about the godly soul. Does the godly soul ever truly become separate from Hashem? Seeing as how Hashem is an indivisible unity, no matter how much the godly soul, we think of it as a, as a being in its own right, if it is godly, it's part of that unity. And so that every godly soul in its essence has a sense that the true being is Hashem. And the godly soul is nothing other than an extension of that, an offshoot of that, a branching of that. So therefore, would the godly soul ever, in its essence, ever seek to prioritize its desires over God's well-being, its existence over God's well-being? And the answer to that would be no. So what is happening is that the godly, the, the godly soul in the complete tzaddik is fully manifest so that this person is no longer seeking to become closer to Hashem, but is rather their love for Hashem has taken on a different meaning altogether. It's how to redeem Hashem from his captivity, so to speak. How to... Um, bring Hashem into a state of um, wholeness or well-being or positivity that apparently Hashem is in somewhat lacking. So now the love is an entirely selfless love. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, no questions, not comments? Quite, no. Why you not? were saying the essential love, essential love of 
Generally, generally, generally. But this, right. But in this context, that's not what love is. Love is, love, the love is the desire for the one you love to be well off, to be in a good state. As we put here, to be redeemed. Okay? Now, why would you love somebody in that way? Because you have a sense that they're the root, they're the source, they're the truth, and you're merely just... Right, the branch, the offshoot, the extension. In real life, when does this happen? This doesn't happen ever in real life. No, no, no. Like, what, what, what context are we... This is the complete tzaddik. So the complete tzaddik is not... When the complete tzaddik is, is feeling love for Hashem, what is that change that make in the complete tzaddik? What does the complete tzaddik want? The complete tzaddik doesn't want to be closer to Hashem. What does the complete tzaddik want? What? He wants Hashem to be happy. Because because in the child to the parent the reasoning is all wrong. No, it is using child. It's saying the child wants to continue the identity of the parent. But why not just use parent would do anything for child? It's more of a because why would a parent? Because why would a parent do anything for a child? Because the so parent is limited. To the analogy, but it's trying. But it's better than the other one. Right, every analogy is limited. The question is, what's the purpose of analogy? The purpose of analogy here is not to, ex- not to give you an example of a, this kind of love in terms of the experience that I want love somebody. So It's to explain what's... The offshooting thing. Right, right. It's, it's to explain wh- what is going on here. This is a person who feels that they are nothing other than an offshoot of God, and therefore they have no desire other than to make God happy. God. It is not about them fulfilling their need to be closer to him. And it's right. not about children realistically doing that ever. Right. And so the Zohar, which is a mystical text, speaks that this is the mystical idea behind being a child. But in reality, which in, for instance in Allah, this is not reflected because in reality, children have their own senses of self, their own egos, their own lives. They live beyond their parents' existence. And therefore, while this becomes an aspect of the, of, the, of the child's psyche, it is, not, it is not in any way a dominant feature of their psyche. Got it. Right? We all grow up and move on. Right? As much as as much as we might not like to admit it, that's what we do, right? Um, so, and this is in general, right? It's very important that in Hasidus, the analogies are concept for the most part conceptual analogies. They are not rhetorical analogies to make it to it feels like this or it is like this. It's conceptually to understand what's going on over here that gives you a model for understanding what's going on over there. Okay. Because he doesn't see himself as something completely separate, the complete Tzaddik will just try to make Hashem happy. That's right. Which is, in essence, kind of making himself happy. No, 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 no. This is very important. This is very important. This is very important. Because that, that's why the Zohar uses the idea of he's willing to sacrifice his own self. In other words, it's, there, is, there, is a, there is a different kind of love that's later on discussed in Tanya in chapter... 43, yeah. 44. No, it's 44, sorry. 44. 
in, in China in chapter 44, it speaks about a love where you realize that your very identity is your godliness. So your love of self and love of Hashem kind of collapse into one thing. Right. And it differentiates that from this love. Okay? In other words, like this. There's basically, if I want to put it like this, there's, there's three kinds of love. There's love of others, love of self, and um, love of my source. Okay. Love of others means that I see some fulfillment when I am with someone else, and therefore I want to be with them. Okay? That's romantic love, that's love of friends, love of, of teachers, of mentors, etc., etc. Et that's the, the generic kind of love. We also have that love between parents and children and, and siblings as well. Okay? Then, there's, then there's what's called a love of self. A love of self is that you want to experience your life more fully. So whatever is... It, whatever, whatever touches on your identity, whatever brings out a, a deeper sense of who you are, right? That, that's, that becomes, a, 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 in a sense, you don't love it as, as someone else, but as kind of some sense of yourself, okay? Um, love of the, your source is a very different thing because love of your source is not, you're not trying to, you're, you're not, the love is, the love, you're no longer in the receiving end. And both those kinds of love, love of yourself and love of others, you're, you're, you, the love is about enhancing yourself. I don't like to be in a state where someone who, who's wonderful is distant from me. I don't like to be in a state where I feel like I'm alienated from myself, I'm not being true to myself, right? right? So my love is getting me to acquire, to achieve, to attain what I'm lacking. Love of your source is very different. Love of your source would be would be the contrary. You, you, it becomes a love of service where it's about not what, to borrow, to borrow the, the phrase, you know, ask not what your source can do for you, but what you can do for your source. Right? This is, if you want to think of an example of this, this would be an example like, say, patriotic love. What is patriotic love? A person loves their country. You die for the country. So what do you get out of it? The answer to that is? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, if we add egotism, we can make, twist that into everything. But just if we leave it as a simple analogy, that would, that would be somewhat analogous to the idea. Okay? So the idea is that the source is the real thing, is the true thing. And I have no identity other than being an extension of that, being in service of that. So therefore, my love is not... The love is, the, the love is taken on a, a, uh, a kind of totally inverted thing that we find more love. The love is not about being thirsty and yearning and wanting to reclaim or attain. It's about, it's a love of entirely that's about giving. Okay. okay. And the root of that is because the sense that the source is, is, is real and I'm not the real thing. I'm just the offshoot. I'm just the secondary element. And that's something that is very hard for a human being with a sense of individual self to actually really experience that kind of love. Like later on in Tanya, he said, I mean, this, this kind of love, are you saying is exclusive to the complete tzaddik, right? Um, and it's because of this kind of a, of a love that they're called b'nai aliyah because their whole service is for, the, for God. It's not for themselves. Okay? Later on, the Alter discusses how really some aspect of this is, pertains to every Jew, but... We're not learning it later on. Okay. So now, 
The question is, I mean, the obvious question is, in what way does God need to be redeemed? Right? I mean, with a human being, obviously they can be in some kind of a trouble that needs to, they need to be redeemed from. But in what sense does God need to be redeemed? So we're going to look in the text. Um, um, in the middle, in, on the left-hand column, in the middle of the column, it says, it says, there's this sentence that starts with the word rather. Do you see it? You didn't get that page? We have two pages. No, it's, oh, what did it say? Rather. Wait, what did it say? Rather. Wait, page 43. You didn't get this? Wait, some of us said I have 41. 41? Yeah. What? Where do you have that? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Rather. You don't have it. What happened to your copy? A special one. Different. It's different. It's a special copy. All right. Okay, so after, so after saying that normal love is like thirst, he says, rather, the complete tzaddik, as is explained in the Tukune Zara, that's the section Zara, who is kind, he who conducts himself with benevolence towards his creator. Okay, so what are we seeing here? That instead of it about being thirst, what you're receiving, right? Love is about what I need, how my needs are filled, my spiritual needs to be close to Hashem are fulfilled. Here it's about the reverse. It's about benevolence, bestowing what you can do. The love is oriented what you can do for God. Now, the Hebrew word, there's many Hebrew words that can be translated as creator. The Hebrew word here that's used is koinoi. And the Zohar makes a play on words from the word koinoi, which means his creator, to kain delay. Kain delay means his nest. So if you read the text in English, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He who conducts himself with benevolence towards his creator, towards his nest. Doesn't like, like what, what are you making the shift? But the idea here is that there's God, and God has a nest. And the nest is not in a good place. The nest needs some help. So the idea here is, it's not that you're doing something for God. You're doing something for God's nest. nest. Okay. What does that mean? Uniting the Holy and Blessed Behe and the Shekhinah within those who dwell in the nethermost worlds, meaning the lowest worlds. So the idea is that there's something called Hashem's Shechina. There's, and he, apparently in the lower world, he is not united with the Shechina. And the idea is that the Tzaddik is trying to achieve that unity. Okay, so let me just restate what the text is saying a little bit clearer. Okay. Hashem has something called his nest, also known as his Shechina, whatever that is. Is he united with his Shechina? No. No. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. Does he like that? Does not like that. What is the tzaddik's entire service trying to achieve? To unify Hashem with his shechina. Specifically, where is the separation? Where is the division met? Play out in the the so-called lower worlds. Okay. So now, what I would like to do is I would spend some time talking about what this means that Hashem is separated from his shechina. 
Um, I learned this chapter of Tanya with my son who's about to become Bar Mitzvah. We, we, learned, we learned Tanya. And um, he asked me if I can explain it to him. But he said, he said in Hebrew, he says, don't, don't, don't just give me a long explanation. He's 12. It's a whole interesting thing to learn time with a 12-year-old because he he's 12 and he's very smart, but he's also just 12 and so he doesn't want me to like, go off and explain to things for too much. Yeah, we speak that must be humbling. <laughs> right, just, just can you like, 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 I know you could talk about it for three hours, but can you like, give me like the two-minute version? <laughs> okay, so, yeah. You may believe that last, Shab- last Shabbos we learned the entire chapter 11 of Tanya in 40 minutes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That was like a lot of work on my part <laughs> to just keep moving. Okay, um, so this is what I told him. We'll start with there because I think it's a, good, it's a good place to start. So I said, imagine you have a kid. And the kid is like, you know, they have good values. They're, 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 they're the person who, who wants to do the right thing. They see themselves as a good person. They see themselves as religious service of God, servant of God. You know, the whole thing, right? And yet, when they get to school and someone makes fun of them, they, um, they don't handle it well. They maybe say something nasty back or they act violently or whatever, right? You can imagine such a scenario, right? In other words, you definitely could have a person where like, they just, in principle, don't see anything wrong with acting in an aggressive way, right? But that's not the situation. The situation is that the person really li- thinks of themselves and tries to be the person that is a good person, an honest person, a sensitive person. And yet, in the actual situation of reality, they don't always act that way. So there's this kind of a split in them. There's kind of a split as to who they are to themselves versus how they manifest in reality around themselves. Yes? Okay, that was... Is that... Now... How deep does that split go? Because if you go all the way to the core of the person, does that mean that they're split into two? No, so you actually have to think here, there's actually how many levels of the person, there's three. There's the core of the person themselves, which is just them. Then there's how they see themselves to themselves. And then there's how they're manifest to the world around themselves, right? And the split, the division, the, the conflict is not it is not in the core of their being, but in how they see themselves versus how they present themselves to others. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So I asked my, my 12-year-old, that makes sense? He's like, yeah, that makes sense. See, that, that doesn't feel very good when you, when you have that kind of situation, right? You would like it to be the case that how you see yourself is also manifest in how you present yourself and how you interact with those around you, Yes? Okay, good. So now, the phrase, holy one, blessed be he, is not in Hasidus a synonym for God. That's the first thing we need to know. The holy one, blessed be he, is not a synonym for God. It is a synonym for the way God sees himself. In other words, just like in a person, there is you and who you are to yourself. Those are not the same thing. I'll give you an example of what I mean in a moment. So too, 
In Hasidus, when the term holy, when blessed be, he's used, by the way, this, is not the, this idea is not an originating Hasidus. This actually originates in Kabbalah. Holy, when blessed be, he is not a reference to God. It's a reference to how, so to speak, God, and I'll keep using this for right now, sees himself. Okay, now, you want to ask something? What? It's like saying from, from Hashem's perspective, there is no such a thing. That's the universal truth. Because mm. Hashem is not an entity that you can say it's his perspective. Oh, so for this, we have to get a little more complicated now. Because Hashem is not an entity. So we will refer to our sphere chart. You see the sphere chart? Is Hashem a complex system of little balls and lines? No. So what do those balls and lines represent? You know this from questions and answers. How God Very good, how he expresses himself. And there's a fundamental difference, which is as follows. All of the spheres, other than the last one, what was the last one called? Malchus. Okay? All of the spheres do a very good job of expressing Hashem. I'm going to come back to what that means in a moment. The last sphere, Malchus, does a very poor job of expressing Hashem. Okay. This is similar to, and this is going to be an analogy, the way in which um, the way we see ourselves is often not in line with how we present ourselves to the world around us. Okay? So what's important to realize is there's actually three things here. There's, there is Hashem, and how Hashem is revealed through the spheres that do a good job of revealing Him, and then how Hashem is revealed through the sphera that does a poor job of revealing him. And because some of the spheres are doing a good job and some, one of the spheres is doing a poor job, that creates a kind of a tear or a split in the entire system of the spheres. Similar to when a person recognizes that the way they are acting, conducting themselves is not reflective of how they see themselves, that creates a kind of a split within the person, a kind of a, 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 a tear. So yeah. the analogy you're saying that how somebody sees themselves is like every other spirit except Malchus. Mm -hmm. And then Malchus is how others, how you present yourself to others. Very good. So there's a split in the spheres. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to move on to a different analogy. Okay? The analogy that we're going to use is we're going to contrast speaking, okay, with feeling. Okay. What is the measure of effective speech? In other words, I can use my speech. How do I determine whether I'm using my speech effectively or not? If people understand what you're saying reflects how you you had it right, and then you backed off. You were right the first the person time. Understands person understands saying. you, right? This is what the... Just remember, like I said about like seeing is in order to be able to perceive the world around you, right? What is speech? Why did God give us a faculty of speech for? What is its purpose? Communicate. To communicate. So the measure of that is, did someone else understand? Okay. So what is the focus? What is the goal in speech? Is not on... 
how I express myself, but on how well someone else understands me. I am a teacher. I have discovered that I can feel like I gave a horrible class. I do not feel like I explained the idea well. I didn't like the way I said it. It didn't like capture. And yet, people got it. They really did get the idea. And I've also given classes where I felt like that was like a really clever way of explaining the idea and no one understood. understood, Right? Because someone else is not you. (laughs) So speech is speech is the faculty in which we put the focus not on our own experience, but on the experience of the other and try to make what we're saying intelligible and reasonable and relatable to them. So that requires a movement away from yourself. There's kind of a, a decentering of yourself necessary in order to speak. Does that, does that make sense to everybody? Okay. In contrast, feeling, feeling love, feeling hatred, feeling compassion, feeling fear, feeling disgust, feeling guilt, feeling hope, what, in order to feel a feeling more intensely, where do we have to place the focus? Yourself. On our own experience, right? As we move away from being focused on our experience, what happens to the experience of feelings? They become more subdued, if not gone completely. So we say that the sphera of Malchus is analogous to Dibor, to speaking, that's the Hebrew for speaking, and the higher spheres are analogous to midos, or emotion. What's the analogy here? The analogy here is, what is the focus of the sphere of Malchus? How well God, how well it expresses God, or how it affects other things? How it affects other things. So, what is the one sphere which is really not about God? Malchus is not really about God. It's about others, affecting others. Just like what is my, my ability to speak is not a really about me. It's about affecting others, that other people should understand me. Another, your faculty of speech is about other people should understand you. The other spheres are really about revealing God. Malchus is about... Having an effect on others. Have you ever wanted to share something and realize that the other person wasn't in a place to hear it? So which faculty was overriding which? The faculty of emotions or the faculty of speech? Overrides emotions. What? I relate to someone else. Overrides how well, if you, well, so then speech was, right, speech ends up being the dominant thing. Now, you could also do the reverse, right? You could, they're not in a place to hear it, but you really just feel the need to like express yourself, right? And so you do so, and that could happen, right? Okay. So now, the idea here is unlike my analogy with, with the child who thinks of himself in a good way, but acts not in a proper way, which just gets at the idea that there can be a, a disconnect between different manifestations of yourself, the analogy is not really proper because it doesn't really get at the underlying cause. Right? The, the, why is it that a child acts one way even though they see themselves in, in a different way? It's a lack of maturity. Right? It's a lack of the ability to regulate yourself. 
Right? And we have this issue as adults also to some degree, right? I see myself as organized, but I don't always do things on time. I see myself as patient, but sometimes I lose my temper. I see myself as empathetic, but sometimes I cut people off, right? That's just an issue of regulating ourselves. Right? Of really taking something and really integrating it into how we live our lives. And that's not really the underlying issue when we talk about Hashem and the split between the... Between the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Shekhinah. The split there is a much more of a conceptual conflict. What is the role of godly revelation? Is the goal of godly revelation to reveal God? Or is the goal of godly revelation to affect others? Affecting others. Well, it depends which sphere you're talking about. What is the role of my emotions is that I should feel connected to things, right? Which I should feel connected. So, so it's about how I feel. What's the role of speech? What someone else understands. There's an inherent conflict between those two faculties. Not because, not, not because of a lack of maturity, because that their focus, their goal, the purpose that they serve are opposites. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So really there could almost never be a connection. It would seemingly be that way. It would seemingly be that way. Connection between one and one. The way you are in yourself and the way you express yourself to others. Because the, the, the focus is, is opposite. Okay, so now... I'm, so you're different? We're all different. Yeah, so let, let me give some examples, okay? There's something called professionalism. What is professionalism? How other people perceive I mean, I I mean could, people could perceive not being very professional. Right? Presenting yourself in a manner that's more like um, polished. Why? So that you can appear a certain way. Why? To impress. I mean, it always has to be about impressing. You can be very professional. It doesn't have to mean you have to be impressive. It depends on what exactly it is. Like, if you're a janitor, you have to be impressive. What does it mean to be professional if you're a janitor? Doing your job right. What? You're doing your job right. Like, I don't know. So if you're a janitor, you know, and so you have to empty the trash. Let's say that's something janitors do, right? They empty the trash. Okay, it's a big institution, it's a school, right? So you can't like empty all the trashes like at a convenient time for everybody, it's just practically not feasible, right? What would it mean to do it in a professional way? Would a professional janitor come into a class in the middle of the class and say, hi everybody, I'm here to take out the trash. Would they do that? Why not? What if they're really excited to do their job? It's not professional, what do you mean it's not professional? Right. Now, the professional is figuring out, like, what is the role others are expecting of me, others need of me, and I adopt that. What about the rest of me that doesn't fit into that framework? What happens to the rest of that? You shelve it. It stays hidden. Right? Now, if you're a judge, that's, you know, there is a certain level you have to come up with some, some kind of an authority, right? Okay. If you're a janitor, it's different, right? 
In other words, you kind of have, the, the idea is that professionalism is similar to speech. What do they both have in common? It's how you are present, it's about affecting the other, right? So in professionalism, you're trying to present yourself and function in a way that meets the expectations of whatever the role you have in society. And the rest of you, which is the more deeper and interesting stuff, stays where? Hidden. Yeah. Because, because no actual speech is being done. In right, right, speech. right. Because, because, the faculty of speech, at its core, is not about uttering of words. Uttering words is just the the practicality. It's like the it's like the ability to paint is not simply like putting paint on a canvas, right? It's, it's manipulating that paint with some kind of an intent. Um, so, speaking is the fact that you have a faculty to engage someone else's mind. Now, the active mode of that is using language. And once you've gotten use of it, you can end up using language. But very often when we are talking, we're not actually really speaking to someone. We're very often just thinking out loud. We blurt stuff out. Um, the more that we engage in the faculty of speech, the more attentive we are to the fact that someone else needs to actually understand us. And it's that that's the essence of the faculty of speech. And it's that that we actually have to become creative in figuring out how to use language. Why does a person develop new ways of using language? Like I teach, right? So I, you know, I learned all this stuff in Hebrew, right? So I have all these ways. And you can like read the translations, right? But how do you develop all other ways of saying something? when you realize that the way you're saying it, people aren't getting, so you have to come up with a different way of saying it, right? And you start to like realize like what words affect people in different ways, how to, right? What, so um, I might use a word that to me like doesn't really capture the idea, but I see that when I use that word to a different kind of person who comes from a different kind of culture, different kind of background, that word is effective, right? And that's really using language. Think about an author, think about a poet, think about a, a speaker, right? These are people, that they're engaging with the power of language because they're trying to affect a changing other person. Very often when we are talking, we're not really even doing that. We're, and and when, when we're more emotional, like one of my kids was very upset at one of my other kids. And um, they were just like lashing out verbally. It was very unpleasant to be around. Um, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was literally just like, like there's just all this negative energy and they're just like exuding it out and the package happens to be a few words. But like, was there any sense of like, what are you trying to convey to the other person? What are you trying to do with that language? Or the words are just like, a, the words are just trying, to, the, the words are almost inconsequential. In words, it's the equivalent, of, it's the equivalent of, of really what my two-year-old does. My two-year-old can barely talk. So my two-year-old can, my, my two-year-old t- can talk and like say a few words to get what he wants and like trying to communicate, but when he's upset, he can't talk. What happens when he's upset? No, he doesn't. Um, he does, but he's like, when he's really upset, he doesn't scream. He goes like this. 
<laughs> and then he like comes up like like maybe then then he'll like lie down on the floor and like <laughs> he's just like exuding all the negative energy out. Now it happens to me once you develop a faculty of speech. So 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 you you move your mouth and you say words, right? But you're you're really not doing it. So this kid who's a lot older than two, it's like that. It just happens to be in a bigger body. And if you, you ever you ever see someone like get cut off in, in the line and they just lose it and they start like getting very upset. They're not talking, they're not using language. There might be, the language is like, it's like it, they're not addressing someone, they're not trying to, to be understood. That's what we say you have a faculty of speech. So once you're developed enough that you have the ability to say words, like the words will come out, you'll end up saying words. But you're not necessarily really using the faculty of speech. So, you, okay, so, so, one second. so much so, just one second, so much so that Chassidah says issuing a command to somebody is only barely considered speaking to them. Because when you issue a command, are you really trying to engage the fact that they should understand you? Or you just want them to comply? So that's barely speech. Okay, so it makes sense that you can talk and not be like speaking for the purpose of understanding. But I think like, if you're like holding back from, from speaking, from like talking with words, you wouldn't call that speech anymore. You'd call that like some other type of communication. But I, like, how can you be speaking without using words? So, part of speech is silences. But that's not speech anymore, though. That's that, that, so that that's that's part of it. Is that part of speech? Is it was because if we're defining speech as a, the function and that faculty in the soul to try and have someone else understand you, the judicious use of silence in order to get someone to understand something is itself a kind of speech. Um, and that's why actually in Kabbalah, it's understood that the power of speech is based on, on, on what it says in, in, in Kohelis and Ecclesiastes, is that speech is something you can turn on and off. That is part of its power, as opposed to, say, thought, where you're always, your thoughts are always on. Right? So a judicious silence is a form of speaking. Like, people who speak rhetorically know this, right? You, like, think about a joke, right? <laughs> if you don't pause sufficiently between the setup and the punchline, it doesn't work. Right, um, the, the 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 you know someone can say something that is food for thought, and it is important that they don't move on to the next sentence. They, they, there's a pregnant pause for the person to digest what was said. Right, that's all part of speaking. Kind of like in music, where where, where I don't know what it's called. What's it called? Where like there's a note missing. You it's don't. An offbeat. No, you know, like you. Like there's. A, it's called, there's a technical name for it. Where like you write in the sheet music, like there's like for half a beat or two beats where you don't you don't play any music, you don't play a note. It's called something. I don't remember what it's called. Bothering you? No, no, it's not bothering me. No. But like it actually really can change the music, right? Where it's like it gives you a sense like there's a there's a there's a pause, there's a break, there's a shift happening. That, that these are very important. I mean, all, all of these kinds of all these kinds of things. I mean, that where we we even for instance that we, we start sentences I just did right and we we trail off sometimes that can also be a form of speech where you don't spell something out you lead a person on because you realize that if you keep talking their mind isn't going to pick up their mind is to kind of pick up the train of thought. There's a whole world of engaging another person's mind and that's really what you're doing when you're speaking. And verbal language is those most overt concrete active manifestation of that. But in the soul, the faculty is to that, to make someone else really understand you. Okay, 
That's what it is. Right? Whereas feeling is really much about your experience. And if your experience is intense enough, you feel the need to kind of exude it off of you, radiate it out, which might come through action, right? It might come through, through, through saying words. It could come through yelling and screaming. It could come through crying, right? Could, there are all sorts of kinds of manifestations of intense feeling, but that's really what it is. Okay? Does that make sense? Sort of. I'm not doing a good job, am I? The speaking part. Um, I want to mention one other thing. The last sphere is called Malchus. What does Malchus mean? Actually, what does it actually mean? Kingship. Why is it called kingship? Right, because what is the measure of a king? How do you measure whether someone is a king, a small king, a great king? By people that he rules over. How do you measure how he rules over them? By how loyal they are to him, how given over they are to him, how devoted they are to him. In other words, it's his ability to affect a change in them rather than anything about him per se. Um, what does that mean about a king, by the way, then? A king has to be very careful in the kind of persona that they cultivate. There's halachas about this in Jewish law that a king has to be immaculate. A king always has to look splendid and regal and royal. Why? About how other people are seeing him. Right. So what if the king is, what if the king is just having a bad day and just doesn't really want to like get dressed? Just wants to just, you know, does the king have a choice? In other words, a king, ha- a king to really be a king has- is-, is basically being a professional all the time. Though your whole life is a professional. Okay. And so in Kabbalah, a king is called, a, this, 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 this trait of malchus is also called a garment. Right? Just like a person, like, I come here every, every three, uh, three days a week and teach you guys, right? I think presumably we all understand that people have lives and sometimes things are going well in their lives and they're not going well in their lives, right? And I'm going to teach you professionally, should you be able to tell every single day whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, whether things are falling apart or things are amazing? No, right, right. I would not be a, a, a good teacher if I did that, right? So what does that mean? That means the whole teaching, that role is something you kind of like put on as a garment. You present yourself. And what about the rest of the life of the person? That's hidden away. Okay. So here's the thing. We have Hashem himself. Hashem himself is this unknowable true essence, right? And he's revealed. Right? He's expressed. He's manifest. He's through this whole thing called the spheres. What are the spheres other than Malchus attempting to do? They're attempting to make sure that that revelation of Hashem is as authentic as possible. Now, what does the word holy mean? Separate. Separate, like in what sense? Like if I take this and I keep it over here so you can't touch it, that means it's holy? It's different. I mean, these two things are different. Does that make one of them holy?
What makes something holy? What is the idea of holiness? We use a different word. What does it mean that something is sacred? It's a better, it's a synonym for holiness, but I think for English speakers, it, it, it captures the idea better because we, because in a secular side, we still use the word sacred even though we don't use the word holy, but they mean basically the same thing. To be cherished, treated differently, better. Why? It's inherently more, if you take something and you say that it's no longer sacred, that it's subject to interpretation. interpretation, reframing, analysis, right? It can maybe be discarded, right? But if it's sacred, it's untouchable, right? Right? That its value shouldn't be put in terms of things other than itself. Is a cup sacred? No, because a cup is there to drink from, right? Is a book sacred? No, a book is not sacred. A book is there to read from. Now, in Judaism, are books of Torah sacred? Yeah. How do we see that? You have to treat them with respect? That doesn't tell me that they're sacred. You want to treat them with Let's go one step further. You think I'm going to drop this book? No. Why not? Because I'm not allowed to? No. Why not? You value it. I wouldn't be able to. It would feel such a, if there's like such a deep aversion to the notion of dropping it, right? Mm-hmm. What would happen if I accidentally dropped it without thinking? I rushed to pick it up and Kira would give it a kiss, right? In other words, there's a sense that it's separate from the normal things. It's not part of everyday life. It's not part, it's not something that's subject to assigning how much it's cost and how much it's worth, okay? Right? So some people, like, they're very against the idea of things being sacred because if something, if, if something is sacred, it's untouchable, right? It's off limits. Right? Okay, so is Hashem holy? I think that's kind of self-understood. Hashem is holy, right? So what are the other spheres trying to do then? Show his holiness. So that's the holy one. But it also says blessed be he. What is the idea of blessing? Blessing is the idea of bringing something out. The, idea, the Hebrew word for blessing, baruch, means the same root as like from a knee to, to bend down, to draw something out, to make it manifest. So what, is, what are the, all the other spheres trying to do? They're trying to reveal the sacredness of God, the holiness of God, the unknowableness of God, the transcendence of God, blah, 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 all these fancy words. But what is Malchus trying to do? Malchus is like speech. Malchus is like professionalism. Is it about revealing, is it about a sphere revealing how holy God is, how sacred God is, how unknowable God is? No. What is it about? What's speech for? That's right. So... Is God the creator of the world? Yes. Which sphera would say would answer that question as a yes? No. Malchus. Does God run the world? Which sphere would answer that question that yes? Malchus. Um, and therefore, if God creates the world and God runs the world, then God has to be kind of he kind of not really take on that role. He's got to be professional about it, right? So if the world is going to have evil in it, God is going to have to what? Put himself in the Yeah, but God is good, right? 
So he's going to have to do a good job of hiding his goodness in order for the evil to exist, right? Right? If there's going to be independence in the world, is there independence in the world? Do we have free will? Judaism says yes. Well, if there's independence in the world, then what happens to the, fa- the absoluteness of God? That's going to have to be hidden. hidden. So what ends up... Malchus is about kind of reshaping God to meet what the, what, what the world would need out of a God. What are the rest of the spheres doing? They're trying to reveal what God is actually like. Now, do you see there's going to be a major split here between Malchus and the other spheres? Does that make sense? That these, are, these are radically different? Okay. What did you say Malchus was? What the world needs from a God. Now, the lower the world... Right? The more ungodly the world, the more God is going to have to be, you know, kind of adapt and change and become different. Right? It, right? For instance, you know, um, who needs to be more professional? More professional. I want you to think about this. I don't think it's intuitively obvious. A college professor or kindergarten teacher? Good. Why? That a college professor, a college professor, at least in some theory of a college professor, right, is trying to do what to their students? Trying to bring the students into the world of their of their interests, right, of their of their quest for knowledge, right. I mean, it's not, there's still some degree of professionalism required, right. But in the end of the day, I mean, the idea is that the college professor is supposed to be somebody who is seeking out knowledge in a particular domain, and then they're also doing what they're trying to educate people to also see the value of that knowledge and maybe even join that field of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. right? But in kindergarten, like you have a grown person, right? It doesn't have to be a woman, by the way. My kids' kindergarten teachers, the boys have, my, my boys have male kindergarten teachers, right? What are, the, what are they doing? They're trying to bring something to the level of a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Right? They're not trying to have the three-year-old and four-year-old appreciate the, the, the world of the adult. That's not what's happening. Right? And so they really have to put on a, 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 a role and a garment and a persona of somebody that a three- or four-year-old can really learn from. Now, does that mean that, they're, does that, mean that it's totally fake? They're being disingenuous? It could be, right? right? But if it's entirely disingenuous, how long are they going to last as a... Surprisingly long. <laughs> well, okay. I would take this back. How long can they last if we don't put any ulterior motives involved? Ulterior <laughs> motives can get you right. Anything you can do if you put enough ulterior motives involved, right? Okay? So, if Hashem is going to create a world of divine entities that are in constant devotion to God, like, it's not like, there's not such a disconnect between the the upper spheres and the sphere of Malchus. But what happens as you start to move to a world, a world which is less and less God-oriented? What happens to Malchus versus the other spheres? There's greater divergence. Right? And so you get this conflict between, so to speak, how God is revealing himself to, be, to reveal himself, or as I put in the beginning class, how he, so to speak, sees himself as himself, versus how he's presenting himself 
to others. Now, being that God is one, is this appealing to God? Does God approve of this state of affairs where how he is presenting to the world, Malchus, is in conflict with an authentic revelation of his, of, of his truth? Is that something that God desires? Is that state of affairs something God desires? And the answer to that is no, because that violates the notion of oneness. God seeks to be one. No. What? No. One. 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 But then why would he have created it this way? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you really want the answer? Yes. You might not like the answer. What? I expect that. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the thing that is most important to God. is us. And if there isn't this kind of a system set up, then there is no room for us to interact with God. In other words, if God just reveals that he's holy and he's one and that's all there is, then all there is is God. What does God desire? God desires a connection to us, what later on is called the dwelling place in the lower worlds. Okay, but it's a connection to us. Then on the one hand, God has to be able to relate to us as us. What sphere is that going to be called? There has to be a way that God can relate to us as us, which is going to be? Malchus. But on the other hand, God has to be able to bring himself in an authentic way into that. And what's that going to be called? The other spheres. Or to use the terminology of the Talmud, the Holy One, blessed be He, and His Shechina. Shechina means the way He dwells, the way He resides. And if you, now think about that. Any connection with anybody else requires you to, on the one hand, be in a way that you're relating to them as them. You're speaking to them. You're trying to make sure that what you're saying is understandable to them. You're working with them on their terms, right? And on the other hand, if that's all there is, then you're just a professional. There's no relationship, right? You have to also bring into that some kind of an authentic experience of yourself. That's a holistic relationship, yes? Okay. So when Hashem creates the world, He creates it that both of these are at play, but are they in a state where they're unified and it's all working out nicely or there's a split? Think Think about a relationship with a person where... There's a tension between you being there for them and speaking to them in the way they need to be spoken to and you being seen and sharing yourself and, and revealing yourself. If those two things are in tension, then you kind of have to like, okay, well, sometimes it's going to be a focus on me and sometimes it'll focus on them and then there's not really unity between you and them. So the, the unity between you and the other has to come about because there's a unity in the two kind of ways you relate to somebody else. You want to think about it like this. Is it possible to both speak in a way that is emotionally 
vivid and authentic and expressive and simultaneously really be understood by someone else? Is that possible? It's not possible? Why not? I think you could. You could. It's impossible? Could you speak in such a way that you are being vivid and expressive and being authentic and you, who you are is coming through and at the same time the other person really does understand what you're saying? Yes. Yes. But is that simple? No. Right? You need to kind of really bring these two very disparate parts of the way you, you relate to, to what's around you into unity with each other. In a similar way, although it's not identical, what is Hashem... What is, the, what is the prison Hashem is in? Is that when he is, when he is connecting to us through Malchus, through the Shina, that comes at the expense of revealing how holy and transcendent he really is. And when he would express how holy and transcendent he really is, it doesn't leave room for him to connect to us as we are. And so these two faculties have to be brought together. And what is the tzaddik trying to do? The complete tzaddik, what are they trying to do? What is, it, what is their goal? To bring unity. To bring unity. To bring unity between these two different ways that Hashem reveals Himself. That's the goal of the tzaddik. Between which two ways? The two ways that Hashem reveals Himself. Which, which are? Which are the Holy One, Blessed Be He, which is kind of getting at His, uh, his uh, kind of authentic sense of how uh, sacred and transcendent He is. And at the same time, there's a sense that he's what we need God to be, the creator of the world, the governor of the world, the source of you know, all the different things that we need, the ruler of the universe, etc., etc., etc. That these two things are not a contradiction. How does he do that? Oh, that's what we have tomorrow's class. Why would that even contradict? I'm not sure. I don't understand. Well. It's just too separate, to me at least. It seems like two separate things, but not in contrast. I'll give, you, I'll give you an analogy because this analogy is going to set up for tomorrow's class. Okay. Um, what does... What does the, the student need from the teacher? Information. Information. Just like dump information, that's all that the student needs. To make the student understand. To make the student understand, right? What does the teacher need for themselves? To understand it first? No, that's for, that, that, for themselves. As a teacher or as a human being? Well, that's a good point, right? Because the, the teacher is only a teacher because there's a student, right? So if it's for themselves, we have to kind of absent the student from the equation, right? Mm -hmm. So now what does the student teacher need for themselves, which is not the role of the teacher? What do they need? No, they need to deepen their own understanding. Think about this. If you have somebody, let's say, they're really, they're, they're, they're a very passionate teacher of, say, math. What does this, the student need from that teacher? To 
communicate well. That, yeah, that communicate well so the student understands the math, right? But if this person is really passionate about math, absent the student, what do they need to for themselves? themselves very well. The same thing they're teaching the student or to go... No, to go deeper than even what they're teaching the student. They have to know more. Right. For the student? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, no, no, it's not, it's not about for the student. What is it about? For themselves. Why? Because they have their own... Agenda? They have their own agenda, right? This is... The, 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 the idea that... The idea that the, the, that... the one who's trying to share something with someone else... If you took away the someone else, you took away that garment, you took away that, that, that role of speech, the professionals and all of that, and you ask like, what's going on inside them, that they have something else entirely that has nothing to do with this other person, those pull in very different directions. Um, in, in universities, you have some, some people who are really interested in being a professor because they want to do a lot of research. Why do they teach? They teach because can you, generally you get a job at a university if you don't teach any classes. Research there. It's hard to get just a pure research post, right? Mm. So what do you end up having to do? Teach. And some of those people, right, they never actually take on the role of teaching, and so they just do like a sloppy job of it. They do the bare minimum because really all they want to do is they want to do their research, they want to go deeper into something. So these are the two roles of God, the teacher so, and the... So you can think about it, right? What are the upper spheres trying to do? They're trying to have a more pure sense of God. More pure sense of God doesn't mean there's a world, it doesn't mean there's people, it doesn't mean there's anything. It just means that there's God. the absoluteness of God. And what does Malchus try to do? That God should be what? Understood. God should be understood. God should be a king. God should be a ruler. God should be a creator. God should be a providential force. God should be a this. God should be a that, right? All in terms of its, his effect on... It's relational. Yeah. Those pull in very different directions. It's not impossible to bring them together, but these are very different. That's a holy one, blessed be he. He's his own, it's separate from everyone. That's right. So That's why it's called holy. Well, why would he need that for himself? Isn't that the whole question we had? Remember I said there's three levels. There's God himself, and then there's the holy one, blessed be he, how he's revealed through certain spheres, and there's the how he's revealed through Malchus. So I'm not asking God himself, does he, what does he need? But if God is being revealed through those spheres, what are those spheres trying to achieve? A deeper and deeper, more authentic, more pure revelation of God. And what does that lead to? That leads to a place for us in our lives, in our world, in our existence. It doesn't lead to any of that at all. It would be analogous to the professor who wants to deepen their understanding of some topic, where the professor would be like the spheres and the topic would be like God. The, the, the tricky thing which throws people off on this is that we sound like we're talking about God, but we're actually talking about... Expression of God. Right. How the, right. Is the expression of God trying to express Hashem in a more authentic way, or is the expression of God trying to alter what God is perceived as in order that God should have a more um, constructive and effective relationship with something other than himself? That's a tension. And that tension is similar to the tension we have in our own selves between the intensity of our own emotional experiences and our ability to speak in an articulate way to make sense, to be understood by others. If holy one blessed be he is not him, it's an expression of him, wouldn't that also be relational? Like it's about, right? Like it's about how he's expressed vis-a-vis -vis us. No, it's about how he's expressed. Just the vis-a-vis -vis is irrelevant. In yeah. general. Right. Ah. 
Think about, think about, think about emotion. Well, because him, him is, is neither of these two things. Are you your emotions? No. Are you your speech? No. Is your speech something, is your ability to speak something separate from you? No. Is your emotion something separate from you? No. So when your emotions pull your, manifest you in one way, and speech would manifest you in a different way, right? That does, right? It doesn't feel very good when you're both simultaneously trying to be understood by someone you care about and be, right, not be all held back and professional, but actually be as expressive and as emotional, as authentic as possible, mm-hmm. right? That is, a, that is something that is achievable, but it requires integration within yourself, right? And also requires that the person you're speaking to be sufficiently interested in what's going on with you, right? Because if they're really not, it's not going to work. Yeah. It seems to be that it's very contradictory that you said that the spirits are the authentic way of Hashem expressing himself. But then Malchus wants that Hashem should be one. That's what you said. No. They all want Hashem to be one. But they right, also have their Malchus, own specific... Yeah. Wants, like that's the goal. Right? Not just I mean, with Malchus. seems to me that it's very contradictory because there's a lot of spirit mm-hmm. and it really contradicts the idea that Hashem is one. So why, why, would, why would they be authentic if they contradict the idea that Hashem is one? Mm-hmm. Well, are the spheres the way they ought to be? That's the question. Or do the spheres need to be redeemed? Do the spheres need to be fixed? Do the spheres need to be corrected? Remember, that's how we started this whole thing, right? That the complete tzaddik is trying to do what? Redeem Hashem. Now, what does it mean Hashem to be redeemed? Does Hashem in his essence need any redeeming? No, but if the tools that reveal him do a very poor job of it, instead of revealing his unity, kind of split his manifestation into two irreconcilable things, then is, he, is, that, is, that, an, is that a state of affairs that's good? No. In other words, the spheres are set up in such a way that they need to be corrected in order for them to achieve their true purpose. Yes, the spheres are supposed to reveal Hashem as one. Do they do a good job of it? No. Okay. So now, what do you care more about? How, you, how close you are to Hashem or whether the spheres which are supposed to be revealing Hashem are doing a good job of that, what they're supposed to be doing? What is your priority in life? What is your goal in life? What is your, what is, what is your drive in life? Can I just ask, wasn't this whole sphere idea introduced by a complete subject though? What do you introduced? Right, so the spheres were God made the spheres, not the tzaddik. Now, if you ask why are there spheres, that's because God wants us to interact with Him, and so there has to be some place where this interaction is feasible. There's a lot of different parts. Like, if you really want to understand this, you have to do something which is really annoying. 
which is you actually have to take each little bit thing that I said, you have to dedicate a lot of time to understanding that idea in complete isolation from everything else. It would be like, do you understand how a computer works? Like really understand. To really understand how a computer works, you have to take an entire class on electricity, separate class on chemistry, so that you can then understand how semi-state conductors work. Right? Then you have to take another class on logic, right? so you understand how logic gates would work. Right? Then you have to take another class on how you can on programming languages. Then you have to take another class to understand how programming languages can be rooted on basic logic gates, right? And like we're not even yet to the state of like programming and what like if you really want to understand how it all fits together, right? So each little bit that I said is really a whole world of complexity. Like the question she asked about like how am I saying being silent as part of speaking, right? So each one of these little things is, is a whole larger picture. I mean, that's why there's lots and lots of books of this stuff, right? It's not just one little thing. What I'm trying to do is give you a little bit of a sense of what does it mean that Hashem needs to be redeemed? Or what does it mean that the tzaddik is, is focused on making Hashem happy? Like, where's the, where's the problem that Hashem needs fixed for himself? And that's the spheres which are supposed to reveal his oneness, are actually not doing that properly. That there's this split between these spheres and Malchus, and that needs to be corrected. And that becomes, and that's the love that Tzaddik feels towards Hashem is about fixing that. It's not about what the Tzaddik gets from it. It's, not about, it's about that Hashem is not satisfied if his spheres do not do an authentic job of revealing him that his connection to the world doesn't come at the expense of his transcendence or transcendence doesn't come at the expense of the world, right? The idea that the higher spheres and malchus are able to be unified. And that's not, this, that's not the state of affairs they started and that has to be corrected. Now, each little detail that can be you know, examined and developed and you're right. And there's a lot of things that are going to be counterintuitive when you look at something, you know, something's that complex you know, in such a short span of time. But the one thing I want everyone to take away is like this. Is Hashem in his essence, is there a split between two parts of him? No, the split is in between, between two different expressions of him. Right? And that's similar to the idea that we have, again, going back to the first analogy I gave, between how we are, so to speak, to ourselves versus how we are to others. And like, if you just can keep that basic core difference, everything will still be grounded on that difference. Okay. Tomorrow what we'll talk about is how does the tzaddik actually bring those two things together. Did you talk about the spheres in the beginning? There was a question and answer, so I answered to talk about spheres. Yeah. I love the passage we're talking about. Sort of. Now it's 